Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. And uh, welcome to our broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Lion Ministries, and <clears throat> this is our Arab Shabbat service for B'nai Shalom, the Internet online congregation. I want to say greetings to all of you that join us each week. You, whether you realize it or not, you're one of, we estimate approximately 18 to 20,000 people that are joining us each week, and so you're in good fellowship with many people around the world, and we're happy to have you. Uh, let me cover just a couple of quick things. We are very close to the beginning of Passover and the whole set of God's appointed times for the year. And uh, I want to encourage you to you know, begin with Passover and begin to keep the appointed times of the Lord, get the blessings from it, and, uh, and throughout the rest of the year, the other appointed times. I want to remind everybody, we will be holding a Shavuot uh, conference on Memorial Day weekend, um, the Feast of Weeks. And if you'd like to be a part of it, we'd love to have you come to Norman and be a part of that uh, you want to log on to Shavuot Event, all one word, uh, ShavuotEvent.com. That's the website to register and be a part of that. And also, it's not, you know, off in the distance in the fall, Tabernacles, the big event that we host each year. Tabernacles Event is where you want to register for that. If you have an RV and uh, you'd like to get a good spot in the camp, you need to register early so that we can place your RV uh, in the camp to your liking. All right, um, we also have a fundraiser going on because we need to upgrade our equipment here in the studio, particularly our cameras and the connections. Um, as the guys have explained to me, the government apparently sold a particular frequency bandwidth uh, to somebody that's not open for public use anymore, and it happens to be the bandwidth that we use from cameras to our audio gear, and so we've got to get different gear um, so that we're not infringing on that bandwidth. And our ministry has always played by the rules. Uh, we have always maintained our own licenses for all of the equipment that we use, all our software we use. We've never fudged on that. And as part of the integrity of the ministry, and so this is an integrity issue as well as a technical issue for us um, to play by the rules. And so we're having to upgrade um, our cameras and some of the equipment uh, switchers and other gear that we use here in the studio. Your help with that would be very much appreciated, and you can join in and be a part of helping this broadcast to continue. All right. Without any further ado, Shabbat Shalom. And why don't you join us now in Kiddush. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Because Jonas is bringing the Sabbath in together. Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav Betzivanu Lekad Lekner Shel Shabbat Amen 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. All right, now let's do the blessing over the cup. <clears throat> Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Morei pri hagafen, Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings the fruit of the vine. Amen. See the blessing over the bread? Hamutzi lekemin haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamutzi lekemin haaretz Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Alright, husbands, let's bless our wives together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for my wife and the blessing that she has, Father. Um, thank you, Father, for just the ways that she sustains us, Father, and takes care of our daughter. And uh, just provides us with so many good things, Father. You've blessed her hands. You've made her diligent and made her able. Um, I thank you, Father, so much, Father, for just the ways that she makes her home such a welcoming place to be, Father, for me and for our guests and for our family, Father, that we invite in. Um, I praise you, Father. I just thank you so much, Father, just the, the comfort and joy that I receive by being with my wife. I praise you, Father, that she raises our daughter and help her many more children and brightness, Father, and in the love of your word. Praise you, Father. And thank you so much. I see you watch over us now in Yeshua's name. Amen. Oh, bless our, our sons. <laughs> face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for you. Grow 
Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Mi chamocha. Mi ba'elim Adonai. Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh. Nohora tehilot. Oh, se. Fele, oh, se, fele. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise. Doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et HaDerech Yeshua, B'Mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah, Yeshua. Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat ledorotam b'rit olam, b'ni u'vein b'nei Yisrael o'thi le'olam, ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai et ha-Shamayim ve'et ha-Aretz, u'vayom ha-Shvi'i Shabbat v'ayinafash. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, 
and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Bauch Shem Kevod Malchuto Leolam Vayet Yeshua HaMashiach Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol merdecha. Ve'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. ושיננתם לבניך, ודיברת בם בשבתך בביתך, ובלכתך בדרך, ושך בך ובקומך, וקשרתם לאות על ידיך, והיו לטוטפות בין עיניך. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be here, and it's a privilege to be able to sing praises to our Heavenly Father and to lead you in worship. And I want to sing a couple of psalms that surround the temple because that was a special place where we'd all be together, the whole nation. We could sing praises. Such a blessing. And really it's a blessing to be closer we can be to his presence, to be in that dwelling place. That's the sweet place. That's that's where we want to be. Amen. They are blessed. They are blessed. Those who dwell in your house are blessed. They're ever praising you, ever serving you. is your dwelling place Jehovah's Yeah. 
we serve a mighty God who is pure and holy and righteous. Hey! <laughs> 
Father, may we throw off the things that entangle us, that keep us from having purity as we stand before you. Please turn with me to the book of Leviticus in your Bibles, uh, where our portion will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher bakabanu mikol haamim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten haTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, we are beginning the book of Leviticus in our Torah cycle here, and uh, we now will have a shift. We'll have a shift in the type of instruction and commandments that are being given to us here in our Torah cycle. To contrast Leviticus with the book of Exodus, which we just finished, I described that the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot, the book of names as it's in the Hebrew, that much of that book is giving us the character of God. We introduce, we are introduced to God, His name. He delivers His people. He has a great deal of compassion, loving kindness. He desires to be in covenant with His people. He shares of Himself with the children of Israel. And in fact, in uh, Exodus chapter 33, we learn of the attributes of God and how merciful and gracious that He is. So much of the book of Exodus introduces the character of God, the almighty living God that we are to be in covenant with. As we now go to the book of of Leviticus, I have affectionately referred to Leviticus as being the user manual for the human body. 
in that much of the commandments that will be in the book of Leviticus will be about us, how we are to be clean, how we are to be holy, how we are to present ourselves as we go into the presence of God. What is that that makes us unclean that then doesn't allow us to be in the presence of God? That is what the emphasis of so much of the, of the book of Leviticus is about. Almost as if Exodus introduces to us to the character of God and then Leviticus then describes us, you know, the covenants are a two-way street, that we are all in covenant, so we learn about God, but then now we need to learn about us. What do we have to do? How do we, how, how are we to carry ourselves or present ourselves as we are in covenant with God? That's how I like to see the book of Leviticus. It's uh, misconstrued about the book of Leviticus that it is all pertaining to the Levites. That's what the Latin and the meaning of Leviticus means, is that it pertains to the instructions of the Levites and the priests. Yes, there are some commandments that are directed toward the Levites, However, so much more of the book is directed to any man of Israel, a, a series of commandments on how to be clean and holy and pure before God, and that it's not just about the Levites. Leviticus has a stigma about it. Amongst uh, New Covenant Christians that believe and look at the Bible, Leviticus epitomizes the old law. Anytime that they think about, oh, those old commandments that are all done away with, they tend to be thinking about the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the, all of the different procedures of, of sacrificing a dove or a bull or a lamb or something like that. They, they put a stigma upon it that that's what's old, that's what's done away with. And the book of Leviticus is kind of epitomizes that in the minds of many Christians. There's many of us that have been in the Messianic movement for a number of years. We have fellowships, congregations where the Torah is taught every single week. And we often will invite fellow friends, family members, those that we know are believers in Yeshua, and we say, hey, come with us to congregation to, to come and, and see what we do, that, you know, we're messianic, we go to a messianic fellowship, come and visit sometime. And then usually it'd be like, okay, well, I'll see if I can make it, and then they don't show up, and, and lo and behold, it's probably happened many times, and I remember thinking this myself, is that, you know, I have a friend or somebody I was looking forward to uh, come and join us at, at our congregation for one week, and wouldn't you know that they w- would have to show up on the week that the Torah teaching is something from the book of Leviticus, something about sacrifices or something about, uh, you know, Lord forbid that it, it's not uh, Leviticus chapter 18 and all of those particular uh, commandments of cleanliness and that you know somebody's coming for the very first time to be introduced to messianic things and the teaching that's done is something from Leviticus and it just you know confirms every insecurity in their brain that, oh, these guys just teach about old sacrifices and things like that. Hopefully, each congregation would have a Torah teacher that would explain the applicability of all of these words and these commandments to even somebody in their Christian faith. And applying all of these sacrifices and all of this instruction in the book of Leviticus to our testimony and our belief in Yeshua the Messiah. One thing that I believe, and I have to say this kind of carefully because I'm not, uh, because some people take these words a little bit out of context, but I believe that Yeshua, his sacrifice that he gave of himself, that there is a shadow or a parallel to every type of offering that was given 
in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. That there are hints and shadows in his sacrifice that point back to all of these commandments. And not, and that he is, and you could say that Yeshua is the fulfillment of those offerings in that he brought out a great deal of spiritual meaning to what those commandments and what they mean. You can look at these commandments and you can say, why is this offering given or why was this procedure taken? And, and, and as we get into other sacrifices, you know, the uh, rabbis say, they're like, well, we don't know exactly what this means or why it was offered this way or why God commanded it this way. But what I believe is the testimony of Yeshua in everything that he did, what suddenly those procedures and those commandments, they come alive when you see what Yeshua did and why these are given in a certain way. And Yeshua is the fulfillment, filling up full of meaning, all of the offerings of the tabernacle. Not that he did so to do away with them, but to suddenly make them become more alive and to, to show us what is truly meant by and spiritually what's going on when these offerings were given. So hopefully that will be a theme as we go through the book of Leviticus, also into the book of Numbers, as we continue throughout the entire Torah cycle. When we start to look at these commandments, we will see how Yeshua and his life, his testimony, is the fulfillment in, in that it encourages us as to that we serve the living God and the Lord knows exactly what he was doing when he gave these particular commandments. So, with that kind of as a primer for the book of Leviticus, Let's go in and let's take a look at what is being instructed here in our Torah portion, which is called Vayikra, which means, and he called, and that's also the title of, the Hebrew title of the book of Leviticus, Vayikra. And our portion will continue all the way through the first part of chapter 6, and will introduce us to a series of offerings that were to be given in the tabernacle. We have the bronze uh, altar in the tabernacle and that there were different types of sacrifices and offerings that were meant to be given on that altar. Let me start now and let's prime us up here on chapter 1, uh, first two verses here. Now the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. What's interesting also about how this book begins, it begins with the preposition and. Vayikra means and he called. That vav in front of the word literally in the Hebrew means and. So that immediately, first of all, you might think, why would a book begin with and? Well, what it does is it immediately connects back to what came previous. And as I already described, Exodus and Leviticus are actually very connected to each other. And if you remember right at the end of the book of Exodus, what we have is we have the presence of God, the glory of God entering into the tabernacle and the smoke filled the tabernacle. They had just constructed it. And now God's presence is in the camp it's in the camp now what now how are we supposed to worship him now that his presence is here can we just go and you know ring his doorbell and drop by and go for a visit now that you now that the lord and his glory is dwelling in the camp no there's a pr proper procedure in which you do this and in fact there's a way in which that this was still controlled as God's glory filled the camp and filled the tabernacle, if you look back at the end of Exodus 40, it says that the cloud rested upon it, the glory filled the tabernacle, and that it was so, um, the, the Lord filled the tabernacle so much that Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting. His glory filled the tabernacle and you couldn't go into it. 
And it's almost like, okay, before we can truly enter into the presence of God, we have to understand a few things first. Now, that's at the end of the book of Exodus, so as we go into Leviticus, that's exactly what we're talking about. If you are going to enter into the presence of the Lord, this is what you must do. You must not come empty-handed. You have to bring an offering before you can enter into the presence of the Lord. When the tabernacle and the temple were, were in place and where the sacrifices were uh, in the process of, of happening, when one would come and they'd want to worship the Lord, they'd want to come to the tabernacle, I, I want to worship the Lord. You'd come to the doorway and you'd talk to the priest and the priest would stop you at the door and he says, Hi, what's, it, what's your business here? What is it that you're doing here? Like I, I've said before, the priests and what much of their job was to basically control and make everything was, was, was in order and in the, doing the proper procedure of the tabernacle. They maintained boundaries, boundary maintenance. That's what they did. And so you would come before the priest and you'd say, they'd say, what are you here for? Well, what you had to do is you had to bring something. You had to bring an offering. You weren't coming in if, unless you had an offering. So you'd have an animal or you'd have some other offering of your first fruits of your field. You'd have a grain offering. You'd bring something. And then you had to confess out of your mouth and say, I am coming and bringing the offering. This is what the offering is for. We have a procedure here of several different types of offerings that were given. And there was some control and there was not chaos every time somebody wanted to come and worship the Lord. And that's what's going on here. Someone had to bring an offering. It, when any one of you wants to come before the Lord, you have to bring an offering. That's what's going on here. Also, something that I want to bring out is this. Is that, um, what is the difference between an offering and a sacrifice? Sometimes it's interchangeable when we're saying here in, speaking here in the scripture. And as I read and as I speak, you know, I might say offering sometime, I might say sacrifice sometimes. And the, the thing is, is I believe offering is maybe a more accurate term. Because when you say sacrifice, what you often think is that you have to give up something to then give to somebody else. And then suddenly you're without. You're then lacking. You don't have, you have to sacrifice something. And so God, if he wants to worship you to worship him, he wants you to be miserable because you have to give up something every time you come. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is that if you desire to be in the presence of God, much of these offerings were to give to the Lord out of the willingness of your heart because you loved him, because you desired to worship him and that you were bringing an offering. It's not that he wants you to sacrifice something and, and be you know, diminished and be miserable in that way. That's not what he desires to be the case. He wants to worship. He wants to fellowship with you. That's why he brought his presence into the camp in the first place. Now, that's not to say, though. That you are to give something of value, something that you, you do consider to have value. One thing in the Hebrew, in the um, Torah scroll, that very first word of this book, Vayikra, ends in an olive, and the scribes have faithfully copied something in the Torah scrolls for hundreds of years, is that the olive at the end of that word is made small. It's diminished. And so when you do, when the Lord calls you to come to you, that olive, which represents strength, that there is a diminishment of strength, that you are to be humbled in some way if you are to be called by Lord, by the Lord, and you're going to come into your presence. So there does have to be some manner of a sacrifice, if you will, that you have to give something of value, and you do have to diminish something, like if you had a big herd, you had 
had to diminish one of the fine calves or, or lambs of your herd, of your flocks. And that had to be the offering because that was the only acceptable offering. If you go to the first chapter of the book of Malachi, and it talks about, let me go ahead and go there. And this is talking about the sacrifices and polluted offerings that were given before the Lord. And it says that, that the Lord's speaking here, and it says this. Let me go ahead and start reading here. Verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1. A son honors his father, a servant his master. And if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To the priests who despise my name. Well, that's interesting. Aren't the priests the ones who worship the Lord and in, in, they've been called and... and A priest should not be with the one who's despising the name of God. Yet you say in the way which you've despised your name. You offer defiled food on my altar. But I say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? What he's talking about here is this, is that when it says that the priests, a a condemnation upon the priests for offering polluted food or polluted offerings, that's not that they offered something that was unclean. It's not that they offered a, a, a pig or an animal that is unclean. No, what it is, is they approached the Lord with an offering that was not worthy of being an offering. It was lame. It was sick. It was like if you have a, a blind animal, it wasn't that that was the, the offering that was acceptable before the Lord. You couldn't just choose, you know, like, well, I don't really need that one anymore, so then that's going to be me, my offering before the Lord. No, well, this has to be done with the right heart and the right intent. That it was a type of sacrifice that you were giving of yourself to the Lord. Now, there's a little bit more on that later. This is also paralleled in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 when King David is buying the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, which is going to become the real estate that the temple is put on. And Ornan also says, here, take of my flocks, take of my calves, take, take these animals as well, that, you, that that is what you give as an offering. And David says to him, and he says, no, I will pay you full price for those offerings, if I'm going to offer that before the Lord, because I am not going to offer to the Lord something that cost me nothing. That's what David says. And so he understands this. If you're going to give of the Lord, you can't just give of something that costs you nothing. It can't be what, you know, your la- uh, neighbor, you know, has an abundance of lambs and he gives you, you know, several to add to your flock and it didn't cost you anything. And it's like, oh man, I, I can keep all the lambs I had before. I'll take one of those and I'll go give that to the Lord. That is not an acceptable offering to the Lord. It has to be of value. So, is it an offering or a sacrifice? Yes, there's an aspect of sacrificing something of value, while at the same time, your whole mentality should be, I'm doing this to worship the Lord. That's what he's calling for you to do. Also interesting in the Hebrew there, at at verse 2 of Leviticus 1, when it says, when any one of you brings an offering, the way that the Hebrew is laid out is, is very interesting. It more literally reads, if anyone desires to bring an offering of you, is actually the way it literally reads. It kind of just moves the the words around a little bit. But if you look at it that way, it's different because when you give an offering, it's to be of yourself, if you will. It's to be something that is not, you're, you're not just bringing an animal, like that this animal is separate from you, 
it's different than you, and then you're giving this, and so it's like, okay, I just gave the Lord, you know, an animal. No, what it is, is that you're supposed to give of yourself. That there's something spiritual going on here, that you are presenting yourself to be in the presence of the Lord. That's what the offerings, they represent. In fact, here in our scripture, let me go ahead and just uh, mention this as well. In our listing and instruction of these offerings here in the first part of, of Leviticus, there's several times over that you will see that the person bringing the offering was to lay their hand or hands upon the offering. The laying on of hands is actually a very interesting topic of discussion, very interesting topic that is actually sometimes a little controversial depending on how people look at it. Many people have said, you've probably heard it said, that the laying on of hands upon the sacrifice was you are placing your sins upon that sacrifice and then that's what was sacrificed to the Lord. I disagree with that wholeheartedly because some of these sacrifices the such as the burnt offering the grain offering or the peace offering have nothing to do with sin it has everything to do with you worshiping the lord has nothing to do with sin yet in the process of those offerings you still laid your hands upon the offering the laying on of hands does not have to do with you putting your sins upon something else what it actually is, is that when you put your hands upon something, there's a connection made between you and whatever you put your hands upon. And spiritually, what's going on, I believe, is that you are imparting a part of yourself upon that thing. You, that way that you make a connection with this offering and that it fulfills this requirement that you yourself are the offering that you are bringing before the Lord. That it is an offering of yourself. And when you play your hands, you make that connection. I would caution anyone that this laying on of hands business is actually very, very um, important. And I would caution somebody from not doing it in a cavalier manner. In fact, even in 1 Timothy, it says, you know, do not let anyone suddenly lay their hands upon you. Do not let that. This is something very important. Do not just let this happen in a cavalier manner. That if you are laying your hands upon something, it should be done with the leading of the Holy Spirit and it should be done with a great deal of spiritual discernment as to understand what you are doing. If you talk to somebody who has the testimony of having healed somebody before, and I know people have prayed for, for others and have laid their hands upon them, and sometimes somebody is so spiritually discerning, sometimes you'll pray for somebody that you haven't even known, and you'll put your hands upon their small of their back or on, a, on their arm, and then later they'll have the testimony and say, you put your hands upon the exact thing that is my injury. Like, I, you didn't know that my arm is what was hurting, but that's exactly where you put your hands. And somebody being led of the spirit that somebody prayed for the exact thing that needed prayer by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when you lay the hands and sometimes healing comes through the touching of the hands, that's imparting yourself upon them. And you are petitioning you on behalf of the father to pray to to heal them. To do something for them. I believe that's what Yeshua did whenever he healed someone. That he laid his hands, he touched them, and when he touched them, there was a part of him, the living God who created the world, the almighty fin the finisher, author and finisher of heaven and earth, and the great physician, the great healer, part of him is what touched them and they were healed. Part of the living God is what healed them and restored them. And even with a woman who touched just the hem of his garment, he turned around and he knew, he said, who touched me? Because he could feel a part of himself leave to heal somebody. This is what's very important about this laying on of hands and this connection that can be made in this way.
It should not be done in a cavalier manner. It should not be done in a, in a way without spiritual discernment. It should be something that should be, you should be very cautious about. And that is a part of all of these offerings that took place as well. Here we will talk about five different types of offerings that were given. The first one is the burnt offering. It was a whole burnt offering that the sacrifice was brought. And this was a voluntary offering. Completely voluntary. Not required that if you want to come, worship the Lord, bring this. And I want to give it as a burnt offering before the Lord. None of it was eaten. The skin was taken, was removed. And the skin was then used by the priests in other areas, whatever they might have needed the, the skin for. But then the rest of it was consumed, completely consumed. And this burnt offering is called a sweet savor before the Lord. That this was a blessing when, when God received a burnt offering, he was pleased. It, it, was, it was pleasant to him as a sweet savor before the Lord. Like I said, voluntary offering. Nothing to do with sin. This is what was to be, this is how you are to worship the Lord. I believe Yeshua, that there's a pattern and a parallel to Yeshua and his sacrifice that parallels the burnt offering. In that when he was put in the tomb, and then when he, they came to return, there was not any bit of him left. He was completely consumed before the Lord. It's also called the Ola offering, which means it's lifted up, is literally what that means. And his ascension, as he was lifted up to heaven, was that he was a burnt offering that was lifted up before the Lord, and his when he was laid in the tomb, completely consumed. Except for... The shroud, the, the, the linen cloth that he was wrapped in, that remained just in the same way that the only thing that remained from any burnt offering was the skin. That's the only thing that remained that, that still existed after a burnt offering had been offered before the Lord. So I think there's a pattern and a parallel to all of that. Once again, nothing to do with sin. The next offering that's described beginning in chapter 2 of Leviticus is the grain offering, or sometimes called the meal offering. In the Hebrew, that's, it's called the mincha offering. And that is an offering that was bloodless. There was no sacrifice of an animal when any of these offerings were given. And in fact, these five offerings that are described here in the first part of Leviticus actually are just sort of five types of offering, and then there's other uh, offerings that took place in the altar service that fall under these categories. So you have this bloodless grain offering or meal offering. The other type of offering that would fall under this category is if someone were to bring the first fruits of their harvest, if they were to bring the fruits of the ground, and that would be an offering. The earliest recorded mincha offering is Cain and Abel where one of them brought a sacrifice of an animal, another one brought a sacrifice, the fruit of the field, and then obviously the sacrifice was not accepted by Cain, who brought the fruit. And some people have said, oh, it's because it wasn't a, it wasn't a sacrifice of an animal that it was only the fruit of the ground. No, there was nothing wrong with the offering. What the Lord didn't like was his heart in, the, in how he gave the offering. So any sort of offering that can be given that is from the fruit of the ground, is a, pure, is a perfectly acceptable offering before the Lord. It falls under this category. Also, anytime there was a drink offering that is poured out for the Lord upon the altar, it falls under this category as well. As a living sacrifice, a, there was no shedding of blood when this offering was given. It's also said this was a sweet savor before the Lord. The priests were allowed to consume some of these offerings as well. And once again, completely voluntary that someone would come and this is the offering that they would make. This makes perfect sense. That if you have a farmer that has fields and orchards, 
orchards, but he's not a shepherd. He doesn't have any flocks or livestock. He can give of his work, his sacrifice, his toil in the ground, and he gives that to the Lord in the same way that a herdsman who has flocks that he gives before the Lord. And this is one, this is how you would come and you would worship the Lord. Again, nothing to do with sin. In chapter 3, we talk about the peace offering, or sometimes called the thanksgiving offering. This is one that somebody would come, and this was a joyous offering that somebody would give. When they would come, and they would bring you know, an animal, and it would be that, this is, I, I wish to just give thanksgiving to the Lord, for no reason but to just say thanks to the Lord for everything that He's done. This one also was a sweet aroma before the Lord, and this was a sacrifice that once it had been taken by a priest, it was sacrificed, put upon the altar, part of it would have been removed and was given back to the person who offered it and then they could consume it they could eat it as a meal and they could also eat it and share it with their family as well this was a great feast when somebody was giving a thanksgiving offering before the lord that's when you invited all your friends and family and say hey we're going to worship the lord we're going to have a a feast we're going to share a meal with the lord the lord's going to consume some of it the priests are going to consume some of it and we are going to bring it back we're going to eat it together as well what an amazing joyous occasion this would have been for someone giving a peace offering or a thanksgiving offering once again like I said the laying on of hands was a part of this offering as well in the sense that someone is giving of themselves to the Lord now when we get to chapter 4 of Leviticus this is where we do now talk about the sin offering or the chata offering and this was the offering that was done that is commanded. It's required. Now, this is not a voluntary offering. This is a sin. If you commit a sin, however, not just any sin, an unintentional sin. In four times in number, in Leviticus chapter four, doesn't say, if you sin this way unintentionally, then this is how you make restitution. All of these sacrifices were for unintentional sins. Somebody came to you and said, you hurt me in this way, you didn't, you, or you, you did something and you didn't mean, there was no mean to do it. There was no malice in your heart or in your intent. However, you do, you, you've committed a sin and then you want to make restitution for that sin. You want to make restitution. Something that's interesting about this is that some people might look at this and say, okay, so you sinned and then you don't have Forgiveness, nothing is, nothing is returned uh, you, to you. You, you. The sin has not been rectified until you have made the sacrifice. That's not exactly true. Because what was commanded of the people, and this is what you had to do before you would come and bring something before the Lord. The scripture says that if you have ought against your brother, you should leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and make restitution with the, with the person you have ought against. That you, it doesn't say that you shouldn't bring it and that you've come to bring an offering and that you're not allowed to bring an offering. No. But before you can do that, you have to make restitution with the person that you sinned against. What this means is that you have to have had repentance for your sin. You had to have had already begun the process of making restitution and asking for forgiveness and repenting of the mistake you made before the offering is given. Before the sacrifice is made. So when we say that, that, the, that the sacrifice has everything to do with, oh, we, you know, it's like how can we be forgiven of our sins if we don't have the sacrificial system? The sacrifice of the sin offering only showed that forgiveness had been made or that, that forgiveness had been given. There had already been repentance taken place. 
The sacrifice of the sin offering simply allowed for you to then enter back into the presence of God. When we sin, we separate from the Lord. We separate. We, we, we no longer are like the Lord who was sinless, who was, at, who was without blemish. He was sinless. And we desire to be in His presence. When we sin, we're removed from the, His presence. We learned that from the original sin. Adam sins, he's cast out of the presence of God. And so what the, our whole desire should be to go back into the presence of God. We desire to be with Him. Now, if you sin... You need to make restitution to your brother. You need to resolve that. You need to get his, you need to get the forgiveness. You need to repent of your sin. Now, how do we enter back into the presence of God? With the sin offering. With the offering that you bring that is a part of yourself that allows you to come back into the presence of God. It's not the sacrifice that forgives you. It's the sacrifice that allows you to return back to the presence of God. Kind of a misconception, if you will, of what this sin offering is. And anybody who says that the offerings, you know, it's like we can't, we don't have forgiveness because we don't have the offerings. That's not what's going on here. Because a man, you're still to seek repentance and forgiveness from the person that you sinned against. You should do that whether this sacrifice is made at all. We, all of us are removed from the presence of God. We don't have the tabernacle. We don't have the temple. So very much we are not in the presence of God. That doesn't mean that we don't seek restitution and forgiveness and that we don't repent for our sins. Because that was a part of this procedure. That had to be done before this offering was given. Very interesting here as we look at this sacrifice in this offering, that it's for unintentional sin. It's broken down into four different types of unintentional sins. The first one it says is if a priest, if the anointed priest sins and brings guilt upon the people, then this is what he is to offer. All right, that that instruction, that doesn't have anything to do with me or you. If we're not a priest, then that instruction doesn't have to do with us. However, this is the instruction that tells us why it was so important that Yeshua was sinless for his sacrifice. That he had no sin upon him. Because if the anointed priest, anointed Messiah means the anointed one, so there's a connection there. And that if a priest sins, it brings guilt upon the people. Upon all the people. And what Yeshua, and that's the opposite of what Yeshua came to do. Yeshua came to remove the guilt, remove the sin from the people. So there's very... As the priest, as the anointed one, he could not have any sin among him. Now, as we know through the process of years of running the temple and the tabernacle, yes, at times priests did sin. Priests were not completely sinless. There's restitution, however, if they made a mistake, there was restitution to be had. Another type that is broken down into is if the whole congregation of Israel sins. I don't know exactly how that necessarily worked if an entire group of people all sinned unintentionally. I don't know how exactly that would work because you would think somebody would have at least read or heard the instructions and somebody would have stopped the whole congregation from sinning unintentionally. But needless to say, that happened as well. If that took place, if that was recognized by an entire kingdom of people, there is a sacrifice and a procedure that can be done to get the to ha, give an offering before the Lord to return back to the presence of the Lord if the entire congregation of Israel had sinned. It also talks about that when a ruler sins, you know, unintentionally, then this is how you make restitution. And then it breaks down even more, this is all in Leviticus chapter 4, of if one of the common men of Israel, if they sin unintentionally, and all the various offerings that could be brought there. Very interesting if you read this, 
in these four different types, it says, if a priest sins, if the whole congregation of Israel sins, if a common man, man sins, in our scripture it says, when a ruler sins. It's almost as if it's like God is already anticipating here in this instruction that, you know, rulers and kings, you know, they will, they will never get away with, with not sinning. It's almost like a, a ruler or a king is, is, it's commonplace to understand, you know, they're gonna probably sin. Rulers and kings, what they do is they have to always work in a manner of uh, statehood, if you will, having to do with, you know, the, the government structure of the, of the nation that he's ruling over and, and things like that. It's almost like there is a tendency for there to be more chances for failure when you are a king or a ruler or if you're a leader. You're kind of held on to a, to a different level. And the scripture here even talks about when a ruler sins, not if a ruler sins. It's not a matter of if, but when. When it comes to a ruler sinning. So that's always something that's just sort of interesting as you read the scripture here. That all of these other things have to do with if. But rulers amongst us, they maybe have more of a tendency to sin. So that's probably why there's maybe more... Um, Attention upon them at times as well. Chapter 5 now gets into the last of the five types of offering. And this is called the trespass offering or the guilt offering. It's a little bit different than the sin offering. It's also required by the Lord. And it's required, and I've heard it described as this, that this type of offering was for the cleansing and restoration back to a state of purity. In the way that the sin offering was to give forgiveness or show the sign that forgiveness had been given. The guilt offering was given basically to show that there is now complete restoration. It almost was a final offering, again having to do with something unintentional. But that it now covered for a complete restoration of you back to the Father. Very interesting about this offering as well, that it, it gives several different procedures in which that the... Um, that you could make restitution, things you could bring. If you could, you could bring a lamb. If you can't bring a lamb, you could bring one of the kids of the goats. If you can't bring that, you can bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if you can't bring that, then you can even bring an offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, similar to that of a grain offering, and that that is an offering that can be made for the trespass offering. Having to do with sin, whenever somebody says that, well, to, to rectify and have forgiveness for sin, there has to be the shedding of blood. In the case of this guilt offering, there is an offering that could be given of fine flour with no shedding of blood that would grant restoration from sin. That there does not always have to be, you know, a pound of flesh, you know, cut from the person who wronged you to give forgiveness, to give restitution, to, to make restitution. That what it can be is that you can just give whatever you're able to give, one should be able to then have the restoration of those, of the mistakes that they've made and the wrongs that they have had. And so in this trespass offering, there was a way to even have, be granted that restoration, even without the shedding of blood. When it comes to this guilt offering, also for the sin offering, nowhere in the instruction does it say that these offerings are a sweet savor before the Lord. The peace offering is, the burnt offering is, the grain offering when it was cooked, every time it says that, it says this is a sweet savor before the Lord. The Lord greatly enjoys the, these offerings. But when it comes to the trespass, the guilt offering, or the sin offering, the Lord doesn't take pleasure in that. The Lord doesn't take pleasure in the fact that somebody has sinned and the, and the reason why this offering is given is because somebody sinned. 
The Lord doesn't take pleasure in that. That should be encouraging to us, that he's not desiring us to sin. It's not that we need the sacrificial system because, oh, we, we need forgiveness and restoration from our sins. That's not why we need this system in place. That's not why many people pray and are looking forward to the restoration of the third temple and that there can be a new um, altar service that would allow for all of these offerings to give. It's not because we're needing this forgiveness for sin and that that's what the sole purpose of this sacrifice and this altar was for. No, it was for the worship of the Lord is what, it, is what it was for. But when you did sin, when you did sin that would separate you from the presence of God, there was a plan and a procedure in place for us to return back to the presence of the Lord. And the Lord doesn't take pleasure in that. But it's a necessary step for us to continue to be a holy people before Him and for us to enter back in to His presence. So that we can be in covenant with Him as we so desire to be, our covenant with the living God. We want to make that restitution. We want to be in the presence of God. And we have a plan and a procedure, even if we've sinned unintentionally, that there's a plan and a procedure to get back to the presence of God. Now, the kicker, of course, is that all of these commandments are all for unintentional sin. So what do we do about intentional sin? If somebody completely intends to sin and intends to hurt somebody and has malice and intent in everything that they do. Well, the Torah prescribes that that person, there's not a sacrifice that they can come back into the presence of God because of that. There's nowhere in Leviticus will it say something that, you know, you intentionally did this and so then here's how you get back to the presence of God. No, the, the, the sentence for that is death. That it's like if, if the man who went out and gathered sticks on the Sabbath day, intentionally intending to do it, knowing right and wrong, and they said, take him to the edge of the city and stone him. What we don't have is we don't have that sacrifice for intentional sin. Well, that's what I believe that Yeshua, being the perfect sacrifice that he was, and the amazing thing that he, the, the offering that he gave of himself, even though there's patterns and parallels to all of these offerings, that he was an offering that covered for sin. He was an offering that was given freely of himself. He gave himself up freely, and he parallels all these other offerings. He also is a greater offering than all of those, is that his offering, we believe, gives us restoration and forgiveness from even intentional sin. However, before we can take part in that restoration and, that, and have that sign of our forgiveness, we must first repent. We must first go to our brother who we wronged and we must ask for forgiveness from them. That is still a process and a procedure that we have to go through before Yeshua's blood can cover those sins. We can't just say, I have the blood of Yeshua, I'm forgiven of my sin. No, you need to have a sign of repentance. You need to come before the Lord with a right heart before that offering is acceptable upon your behalf. Yeshua's sacrifice is only acceptable for you if you yourself have removed the ought that you have with your brother and that you yourself have sought repentance. That is what we all need to do as believers. It's a blessing that we have this procedure here for these things. Spiritually, we now have to do this all in a spiritual way, inside our own personal hearts and our personal tabernacles in the presence of the Lord. Because we don't have an altar service here. And we don't have it physically in the world today. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem to where we can follow these procedures. But that doesn't mean that we don't have forgiveness of sins. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't repent of the mistakes that we've made. The whole thing of this, of this sacrificial system can be boiled down to this. This provided a way to, to create a substitutionary system 
for something that we did. Something that we did, we then can put a part of us upon an animal and that there's a substitution for us when this animal is slain. Without that procedure, without the concept of a substitutionary system, then we have no valid sacrifice in the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. Because if he took our place, he, he died the death of a one who was cursed, who did things, who, who um, we've all committed sin. We've all transgressed the law and the commandments. And it says, cursed is the one who does that. So we are deserving of punishment, of capital punishment for those things. And we believe that Yeshua and his sacrifice was an acceptable substitute for that sin. If we do not have the instructions of Leviticus that outline how this procedure works before the Lord, then we do not have the precedent for Yeshua to be our substitute for our sins. We should never look at the book of Leviticus in any way that it's old, it's done away with, we can't do that, that doesn't mean anything to me anymore. No, without these instructions, without God giving these instructions to Moses and to the children of Israel, there is no precedent for Yeshua to be a living sacrifice before us to atone us and to cover us for our sins and our transgressions and that we do not have salvation in Him if we do not have this precedent set. So, with that as a primer for the book of Leviticus, let us, as we continue to study these uh, instructions and of all the different offerings, let us continue to see our faith in Yeshua and the reason why we believe in Him and the reason why we believe that He was a sacrifice, an offering from God to make atonement for our mistakes. Let us allow all of these instructions here for this Torah cycle to lift us up in our faith, not only our faith in the word of the Lord and the Torah, but our faith in Yeshua the Messiah as our Savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you, Lord, for every commandment that you have given to us in your word. Lord, we thank you for the example that you have set and the teachings you have taught us about these offerings and how it is we are to go before you and to worship you and to come back into your presence, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for giving a procedure for that to take place because, Father, we desire to be in your presence. We desire... To dwell with you. You have said you desire to dwell with us. You commanded us to make a tabernacle amongst us for you to dwell. And Father, we don't want you to just dwell with us as a neighbor that we never visit, Lord. We want to be in your presence. We want to fellowship with you. We want to bring an offering before you. Give gifts before you, Lord. Share a meal with you, Lord, is what we desire to do. So, Father, we thank you for the procedure you've given for us to do that. We look forward to the time, Lord, when these procedures can be established with a new temple and a new altar, Lord, and that we can return back to an amazing way of worshiping you. While at the same time, Father, we know of the ultimate sacrifice that you've given of your firstborn son, Yeshua, and what he covers and how he fills up full of meaning all of those sacrifices and the ways that we are to worship you. So we love you, we bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day for all these things. In Yeshua's name, Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher nathalanu Torah temet, v'chayalam netah betocheinu, Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching. As we open the book of Leviticus and the new covenant teaching that we have uh, for this portion, if you would turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, Ephraim gave you a little bit of an overview of, uh, with Vayikra about the book of Leviticus. And as, as he said, and as you all know, when you, when you start talking about, quote, the law, uh, most believers, they have no doubt in their mind that when you mention the book of Leviticus, you're talking about the law. And, and of course, the portions that we're in are the commandments to the priests for how to present certain sacrifices uh, to the Lord. And sacrificial system is part of the worship of God and specified by the law. Um, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to have Paul teaching a very deep Torah concept, a concept that actually is taught in Leviticus, but most people can't get to that level because they're hung up on the sacrifices. They're hung up on uh, the presentation of the gift uh, for the altar. And Paul is going to focus on what is the proper way for a person to come and worship the Lord and present a gift for whatever reason uh, it is, whether it be a whole burnt offering, a free will votive offering, you know, what, what it's sin and guilt offerings are, and, and other things associated with it. And he's going to deal with how the Spirit is absolutely essential in, in obeying the commandments of the Lord. So with that quick intro, let me take you to Romans 8, and let me begin reading to you from verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in the Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the Spirit of life is Messiah Yeshua, has made you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of the Messiah, he does not belong to him. And if the Messiah is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. Now, 
let me just tell you, when the average Christian reads Romans chapter 8, he immediately thinks, oh, well, this is Paul explaining to us that Messiah Yeshua has completely replaced the law because they start saying, well, the law it represents things of the flesh. And we're, of course, not supposed to be part of the flesh, which is the keeping of the law. Uh, we should, in fact, be following the spirit of the Messiah. And so they talk about that they think that's what Paul's trying to teach here. Paul's not trying to teach that. Paul's trying to teach how a sacrifice was truly bought, brought to the Lord, how a gift was truly brought, and how that every one of those sacrifices was showing the picture of what the Messiah would do and how he would be brought before our Father for our benefit. Let me go ahead and just say this flat out to you just to kind of put it in proper context. If you believe that there are no more appropriate sacrifices for the Lord, you have just denied the redemption of the Messiah. Let me restate that again. If you are opposed to the idea that God would want to have sacrifices brought to him anymore, then you have nothing to do with the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God's sacrifice, which is far and above all of the other sacrifices. All the other sacrifices did was teach us how to come before the Lord in the right spirit to present ourselves before the Lord. If you recall, when Ephraim went through it, it talks about each of the sacrifices that, that the man would have to put his hands on the sacrifice and put the burden on the animal. And what he was doing is he's going to have to put the things that are internal in him, the things that have caused an issue between him and the God, is to put that burden on the sacrifice so that God will accept that and take that burden away. And the idea <clears throat> that uh, the law is simply teaching, well, you know, bring your stuff in, we'll have a nice barbecue uh, with the Lord, is missing the whole point. You do know that if a man in ancient times were to bring in these different sacrifices, whether it be a goat, a lamb, or a bull, that that was a serious expense. That was a major gift. And then on top of that, the law specifies that it has to be without spot, without blemish. It can't be sickly. It has to be in perfect health. And in fact, the herdsman would go out to select the best of the herd. So there was a spirit to how this was done. There was, a, there, there was every intention to present themselves before the Lord as best as they possibly can. And the same thing is true of what the Messiah has done for us. The Messiah is the indescribable gift. He is the best gift that could possibly be given. And he's the one that's presented for us. And all we have to do is follow his lead, look to him, and we have the perfect gift given to the Lord. And at the same time, he takes the burden of our sins. Now, where do we learn the concept of that? From the law. From the law of sacrifices. From the law that taught us about what's in the heart of the matter. Next week in the Torah portion, 
uh, Ephraim will probably point this out to you. Uh, when it repeats again uh, about the sacrifices, you, this portion and next week's portion, they're going to talk about the same topics to some extent. And um, whereas the first set that we have here is this is what God specifies for the sacrifice. And then the second set that will come next week is talking about how it will be presented. And in the second one where it talks about how it's to be presented, uh, when it talks about putting the whole burnt offering up on the hearth, up on the fire, up on the altar, uh, there's a very interesting thing the scribes do there. And where they take a uh, um, the letter mim that is in that, and they um, do something kind of interesting with the letter mim. So what are, what are they trying to say? Well, the letter mim has to do with um, where the soul is at, and it's really a picture of a womb, the womb of a mind. That's where that's where. Everybody in the world that exists today, you were all formed first in a womb of a mother uh, before you were physically born in this world and became an identifiable person. You were first formed there. And that's where a living soul entered that baby, that God put a living soul into, into to you at that point. And the whole idea behind the mem is that when you go to present your all uh, your sacrifice up on the altar, you're supposed to be putting your soul up there. Now that's the spirit of the Messiah. Understanding that when a sacrifice is presented is what sets the stage for you to understand what has the Messiah done for you. You know, not only did he put his soul up on there. Before us, he offered all of himself there, you know, including that. Uh, Paul is trying to get us to understand this very important principle, I think, for two reasons. Number one is I, I think he wants us to really, truly have as the emphasis of our spiritual walk in life is the work of redemption that Messiah has done for us and building the relationship, a loving relationship with us and the Messiah. But I think there's another objective that he was dealing with here, and it was that, that which is part of the context of the book of Romans. Paul wrote this book when he journeyed over to Italy and to Rome. He was supposed to be on trial with Caesar, and he waited there a couple of years for the trial to take place. And while he was there, he dwelt and he invited the fellow Jews that were living in Italy and Rome at that time to come in and he would teach them. And he would be teaching the Torah to them on each Sabbath and explaining how the Messiah is part of what the Torah was talking about, part of what the law was trying to explain. And so these are deep Torah concepts. These were intended first for a group of people who already had been learning the law. Not the Pharisaic version of the law, but they were learning the law that Moses really taught, that the prophets spoke of, and the law that, that the Messiah came and taught about. And so he's giving an expert, detailed definition and that's the reason why this passage has been selected uh, as to go in parallel 
with the passage in Leviticus about explaining sacrifices. Now, I will make a confession to you. Um, I don't find a whole lot of New Covenant brethren that even begin to understand the book of Romans. And in fact, in Bible colleges and in seminaries, they will admit that the book of Romans is one of the deepest theological books that teaches the dogma of the faith. It teaches redemption. It teaches justification. It teaches about the law and how it related to the Messiah. Now, uh, contrary to what I think Paul was intending, the average Christian teacher, pastor, whatever, he thinks that Paul is arguing against the law here. And Paul's not arguing against the law. He's trying to help some people who knew the law to understand more deeply about what the law really taught. Well, if you're devoid of understanding what the law really taught to begin with, you could be highly confused by this. You would not understand the contrasts that are taking place in the scripture. And as a result, you could easily uh, misconclude that Paul was trying to teach, hey, the Messiah and the new covenant has come and replaced the other covenants and replaced the law. And we get our big arguments about law versus grace sometimes is justified out of theologians today, Christian teachers today, based on some of these concepts taught in the book of Romans. Um, if you go back to Romans chapter 6, Paul specifically states that we have grace from God now. However, we are not to go out because of the grace of God and go out and willfully sin more so we can make grace to be greater. God forbid that we would use the grace of God to give us a license and permission to sin even more. And by the way, what is the definition of sin that he's talking about there? The transgression of the law. So the grace of God has not given us permission to transgress the law or transgress the law even more. However, that is what is the common teaching from this book. And they ignore the pleas of Paul. In, in that chapter 6, he says that what we've been delivered from is the law of sin and death. Well, what specifically is that? The law of sin and death is the one that talks about there's consequences of sin. You die. That's what Paul's trying to talk about here. The flesh leads to death. If you cater to your flesh instead of to the spiritual things of life, you die. So what does the law teach about the flesh and what is he really talking about? He's talking about the three appetites that God has given to us as mortals. Appetite number one is food. Appetite number two is ego, self-esteem. Appetite number three is sexual and for procreation purposes. Um, each one of these, if you abuse those, if you allow that natural appetite to take control of your life, then the flesh is now controlling you. And if you follow the flesh, if you follow the items of the flesh, the law says the soul that sins dies. 
Guess what Paul's teaching? You follow the flesh, you die. That's the teaching of the law. And he's teaching the law here. But then he talks about that the spirit is what takes you to life. Guess what the law teaches you? There must be a sacrifice come, and a sacrifice, a substitution has to be made to get you out of this. Well, the greatest substitution sacrifice there is is the Lamb of God. And all of the sacrifices that were given were simply to teach you the concept, to understand what is required of God for a substitution. And so he gave a whole series of instructions for the, for the people on how to present yourself before the Lord. This is what you'll bring. This is how it will be treated. This is how it will be handled and how it will be taken care of. And obviously, one of the things you conclude is God has some very specific rules for his altar, for his table, and he wants it done in a particular way. Not the way you decide, but the way he has decided it will be done. I don't know, have you ever met a person who, when they're talking about uh, their faith, and they're talking about how they feel about God, that they kind of create in themselves, and I'll use this example, you know, I can be just as spiritual, in fact, I think I can be more spiritual if I just go out and get myself out in the nature, and I see a beautiful scene, and I sit on a mountain, and I just sit there and soak in uh, the natural things that God has created. And that's far more spiritual than me sitting in an assembly listening to someone teach the scriptures, or singing and worship. Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? Yeah, that's them deciding how they will present themselves before God and how God is going to then do something wonderful for them, whether it be euphoric or feel at peace or content or whatever. Can I go ahead and tell you what that is? That's a lie. That is sheer nonsense. If you're going to approach God, you're going to approach God the way God says. You don't decide how it's going to be. What would you say to a kid who says, well, I'm going to decide what I'm going to do and announces to the parents, you know, as to how they will conduct their life and how things will be in the house that they're growing up in? I don't think that will play well. And I don't think there's a parent that will accept that. What do you think our Heavenly Father thinks of that? I submit to you, he's not going to play that game. If you're going to come before him and worship him, you're going to do it the way he specifies. If you're going to come and do business with him at his table, sit at his table with him, you're going to do it according to his instructions. Not a whole lot uh, different from if you're going to sit down at the separate table, you're probably going to follow the table rules that have been specified by mom and dad. Mom and dad will set some rules on the table. You know, we sit... And we eat our meal, we say thank you and excuse me and other kinds of protocols associated with no elbows on the table, wash your hands before you come, um, eat, eat your food properly, don't, don't chew your food with your mouth open, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the, you know the list. So what's so different from that than God specifying how gifts will be brought to him and how they'll be put on his table? There's no difference. That's his right to do that, just like it's your parents' right. And by the way, why do the parents do that for the kid? So that the kid will learn. 
so the kid, when he when they grows up, will be responsible for himself and able, you know, to conduct his business correctly. I've always said, uh, being a Torah teacher, that really what the Torah is, and my effort to teach the Torah, is I'm really just trying to teach the brethren how to make good judgments, how to be able to discern right from wrong, how to be able to discern holy from unholy, pure from impure, so that you can make good judgments. But those who would advocate, there are no rules. Those rules don't apply anymore. Are those that would come to the dinner table and quite honestly embarrass themselves and probably would be asked to leave the table. And this is what Paul is saying here. If you prefer the things of the flesh over the spirit of the Lord you're going to pay an incredible consequence. It will lead to death. And if you, But if you're looking for peace and good things, then you want to follow the instructions of the Lord, and you follow the law from your heart. Just like when you present a gift, it's from the heart that you do it. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about... Um, the whole concept of how God wants us to give when we give. And if you'll recall, if I repeat for you, for the last two weeks I've been saying it's from the heart. It's not the physical thing. Well, the same thing is true of coming and presenting animal sacrifices. It had to be from the heart. That's what was specified. And the standard, the standard for we do it the Lord's way is modeled for us in the whole sacrificial system where there has to be a priest that is involved. There has to be an intermediary. Now, that's what, that's what the Messiah came teaching. That's what the teaching of the Messiah is. The Messiah is our intermediary. He's our high priest. He's the one who's able to present the sacrifice before our Heavenly Father. He's the one that's able to approach and be our advocate, just like the priests were advocate for the sons of Israel. It's a model it's, it's to teach us the things of the Messiah. But the idea and the goal of the teaching of the Messiah is to lead us to the Messiah and help to understand the Messiah. I tell you right now, I know this. People, some Christian people are going to be listening to me and they're going to disagree. If you're ignorant of these concepts that are taught in the law, you do not understand what the Messiah has done, why he did it the way he did, and essentially... You're just saved barely by the grace of God. You have no idea what God really has done for you. And I submit to you, your faith is very, very small. It probably won't work for you when times get tough. Because there's no, there's no faith. You barely made it. You just followed what somebody told you to do. You're hanging out with a group of people who all have the same testimony of believing in Christianity. But do you know the Messiah? Do you know why he did what he did? Do you understand why God built covenants with us? Do you understand the big picture of God's trying to reach out to the whole world? And he started with by taking a man and his family. And he built a nation from that. 
that would all give this testimony. And from there, he'd set the stage for a Messiah to come forth for the whole world. And you and I, and we are the majority of the people that have ever lived in the history of the world, we are now the benefactors of recipients of the promises of God when he, he gave to all of our forefathers. Now, what did Abraham believe in? He believed that the Lord would do things like that. He was taught to believe that a son would be given, his son Isaac. What else did he understand? That God would do something like that for him too. And the whole concept of the Son of God, the whole concept of the Father giving the Son, the Son being a sacrifice, was first laid out for us way back in the book of Genesis to the promises to Abraham. That's the reason why earlier in this book, Paul will be quoting and talking about the example of Abraham, like chapter 4. He's laying out deep Torah concepts to try to get his fellow Jewish brethren to, who, who know the Torah to understand what the Torah had really been teaching. The most Christian thing I've ever done in my life was keep the Passover. Now that may sound ironic uh, to you, but I can assure you that it was an eye-opener. You know, I thought I kind of understood what the Messiah had done. I thought I understood the prophetic of that I would understand, so I knew that Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah. But once I kept the Passover and then listened to what he said at the Passover when he was with his disciples, then I got a whole other picture of what was going on. Did you know that in all four Gospels, the dominant topic that all of the Gospels do. In other words, the most number of chapters of each of the Gospels that are dedicated to the, to the whole story of the Messiah. The most number of chapters is dedicated to the subject of the Messiah keeping the Passover with his disciples. The God, what it, got, it came down to was when the Messiah would present himself as the Lamb of God and, and when we would receive redemption. The ancient story of redemption from the Torah. Since I've been a Torah teacher for a while, I can give you a synopsis of the Torah in two sentences. The Torah is the story of one generation that was redeemed out of Egypt and given the promise of going to the promised land. The first chapter, Genesis, is just explaining where did these people come from and how did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. But the Torah is all about this great story of redemption. From the beginning and ultimately to the end, the promised land that we're looking forward to. So when the Messiah came, what is the story that he's teaching? What is the thing he's illustrating? What is the thing that of all of the stuff taught in the Torah, what is he trying to illustrate for us to see? Exactly what Moses taught, exactly what God gave to Moses to teach, so that we can see the fulfillment. And that's what Paul said, that we are the recipients here in, in, in Romans. He said, we're the recipients of what was formerly promised. We have received the promise. We have re actually received the Messiah. They looked forward to the Messiah. We've now received it. But if we go forward... 
And our definition of Messiah is not based on the same foundation and teaching that it was the same that the promises that were given and that our ancestors believed in. If we don't believe in the same things they believed in, I'm not sure you're going to make it to the bosom of Abraham. There should be a serious question in your heart. Where, what do you think is actually going to be going on when you get to the kingdom? Let me go ahead and just tell you right off the bat, it's not going to be first Baptist of heaven. And I'm not taking issue with the Baptists. I was a former Baptist. I'm trying to tell you the concept that you have right now, spirituality, that is not what the promised land is about. The promised land is all about the original promises that were given by God from our ancestors, and we are descendants of them up to this day. God didn't come up with plan B. He's always had plan A, and he's always been working to plan A. God doesn't need multiple plans on figuring out how to save people. It's the original plan. And in the law, where we learn about sacrifices... And a priesthood that has to do certain things. You could summarize the whole thing in for us as as believers. That you and I are supposed to come before the Lord and give the sacrifice of our lips and praise and adoration. That praise and adoration is supposed to come from heart. That you, you make a thanksgiving offering from the heart. Now we don't have a temple today. We don't have a, an altar to operate on today, but the Messiah taught us how it's really from the heart. And so Paul's teaching, the real issue is the spirit of the Messiah. Now, if they do ever get an altar and a temple and so forth, will it be appropriate to have sacrifices there again? Absolutely it will be appropriate. Because that's not in conflict with what the Messiah did and said. That illustrates it. I've always shared with people that if they ever finally get the altar going, and one of the things they would have to do is do the daily sacrifice of the morning and the evening clams, I think the first time for a lot of people that live in this generation, the first time you get to see how a lamb is slain and presented on the altar, I believe suddenly your spiritual eyes are going to open and, and, and you will be probably doing what the guy who brings the sacrifice does. You'll probably weep because you'll see the picture of what the Messiah did for us. I know I can already anticipate what my, my feelings and my heart will be. There's a several years ago, um, I and some other brethren were invited down to this uh, home. It was in the southern part of Oklahoma, and um, he had some goats, and uh, he decided to invite a bunch of us to come down there, and he was going to take one of the kids, one of the young goats, and um, you know slaughter it, you know put it on a spit, and we were going to cook it, and then we we're going to eat eat this goat. I was really looking forward to it because I like goat and lamb. And uh, he told us to be down there at one o'clock uh, that we'd be uh, that we'd be eating and so forth. So we drove and we arrived at, one, uh, arrived at one o'clock and we got down there and he said, well, actually dinner's not going to be until uh, four o'clock. I said, oh, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, we had a little problem preparing the goat. I said, really? What, what kind of problem? 
So uh, we went down there to um, cut its throat, slay it, and uh, and we so we we had to cry for three hours before we could do it because we suddenly realized we were taking an innocent life so that we might live. And it came to us what the Messiah had done for us, and we just uh, we had to bawl our eyes out for three hours before we could do it. Now, guys, that's what we call the spirit of the Messiah. That's not slapping some animal up on the altar. That's not the Christian definition of law. That's the real definition of what sacrifices mean and what the Lord did for us. So, the bottom line is, Paul is making this emphatic argument. Do not follow the things of the flesh. Leads to death. That's what the law teaches. Follow the Messiah. That leads to life. Oh, by the way, the Lord says those things lead to life. And you know what the Lord, the Lord had to say about the law? If you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, the commandments of the Lord are also in the book of Leviticus. They're his commandments as well. Amen? Shabbat shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom 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 Shalom
gift from God has put a smile upon your face. He's got the whole world in his hands, so obey his commands, and you will know peace. Ciao.